the Jewish views on Brit Millah, as a judge rules that a Muslim father's son can't be circumcised, is this something that we should be concerned about? How far would you go to help a loved one with cancer? Alexis Boo and her sisters will go 26 miles. And the Nigella of the dating world, Natalie Breyer, tells us why she is a modern Shadchan. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news stories from the past week, I'm Jason Rosen. The newly elected president of the National Union of Students has been announced as Malia Boutra. Her appointment has caused concern in the community following her past criticism of Israel in a previous role. She spoke out against what she called mainstream Zionist-led media outlets. The Union of Jewish Students has said that UJS is proud of its long history and long-standing positive relationship with NUS, and they hope that the relationship will be able to continue. Further concern for the community came when members of NUS applauded arguments against commemorating Holocaust Memorial Day. A judge has ruled that a Muslim man will not be allowed to have his son circumcised. The child's parents, who are not together, differed in opinion on whether or not the religious ritual should be carried out. Mrs Justice Roberts went in favour of the mother who wanted to wait until a time when the boy was old enough to make up his own mind. Jewish leaders have urged the community not to read too much into a very specific case with Shimon Cohen of Milar UK saying this could not be seen as a general ruling on Brit Milar. An advert sponsored by an online supermarket placed in a London-based newspaper has received open criticism after it featured a quote from Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels. The image depicts a child holding onto barbed wire with a headline that reads Millions of refugees have fled war and persecution last year. The Evening Standard responded by saying that they were hugely regretful that the advert in question had caused such offence, adding they had no role in its design or content. The advert has been called ill-considered and wholly inappropriate by Karen Pollock of the Holocaust Educational Trust. The Ukraine has appointed its first ever Jewish Prime Minister. Vladimir Grozman was elected following the resignation of the country's previous incumbent. He was voted in 257-50 to 50 and was officially appointed by President Petro Poroshenko. And finally, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the UK nearly ended up with the first genuine Jewish princess. In a new book entitled Game of Crowns, author Christopher Anderson claims his Royal Highness Prince Charles was once infatuated with Barbara Streisand after the pair met on the set of the movie Funny Lady. Miss Streisand shared a coffee and a conversation for 20 minutes with the prince following their first encounter. She claimed if she hadn't been so nervous, she could have had the upper hand in the contest to be royal bride. That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sports. Thanks, Jason. North London Raiders A are closing in on the League and Cup treble after they beat Oakwood 2-1 in the Cyril Annexdean Cup final. They're a win away from retaining the Premier Division title and also in next month's Peter Morrison Trophy final where they face Hendon, the only other side to have won the treble. They can clinch the title when the league resumes on the 8th of May. The Raiders will contest the Peter Morrison final after Maccabi London Lions A, who beat them in the semi-finals, 
were thrown out of the competition for fielding an ineligible player. Elsewhere, gymnast Alex Shatilov has qualified for his third consecutive Olympic Games, the 29-year-old becoming the 29th Israeli to qualify for Rio in the summer. And finally, Elisha Levy has been named as the new manager of the Israeli national football team. The 58-year-old has signed a four-year contract and will be looking to qualify the country for their first World Cup since 1970. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. Let's start off with a rather evocative front page title, shall we? Uh, Muzzle Tov from the Zionist media. What are we referring to? Indeed. Well, if a man who calls Hamas his friends can be uh, leader of the Labour Party, then a woman who sympathises with Hamas's armed struggle against Israel can be the new president of the National Union of Students. And that's exactly what happened yesterday when this vote was flagged earlier in the week. I had a chat with uh, Justin, who sat beside me in the studio now, and he said, if, if this woman becomes president of the NUS, it has to be our front page story. And I kind of shook my head and said, oh, student politics. But when the news broke... It sent a shudder down my spine just in terms of the the implications and the message this is sending out about not just Westminster politics, but grassroots politics in this country. I totally understood what Richard said when he had his reservations, but I, I think that at this present moment when we're seeing such concern about campus, where campus is such a center of delegitimization of Israel, the idea that she could be elected as the head of the students with with responsibility for their care is fairly unbelievable. And I I personally feel that, that she, in one person, embodies all that is of concern to so many students and all that is making students uncomfortable on campus at the moment. Well, the person we are talking about is obviously Ismalia Boisier, who has, as you say, has just been elected as the new president of the National Union of Students. I have got quotes from her. We did invite the National Union of Students and indeed Malia to take part in this programme. She wasn't available, but they have sent this as a statement. And she says as follows, Jews have faced horrendous persecution over thousands of years and Jewish students on campuses and elsewhere continue to face anti-Semitism. Our movement knows this and will stand alongside them. And she also goes on to say that she has made it clear in her election speech that she has experienced the devastating effects of terrorism and persecution firsthand. And as a result of it, I'm guessing that she's saying that she does empathise and does understand concerns. But then does this mean that the community is yet to be sold on that? She, on the one hand, refuses to condemn ISIS. I mean, just let that statement sink in for a while. She refuses to condemn Islamic State because she believes that is then going to encourage a backlash and Islamophobia. However, she continues to clobber Israel and, quote, Zionists. And the clear encouragement of anti-Semitism that that would cause seems to me to be a a, a mass hypocrisy. This woman is idealistic, for sure. I I think she's more idiotic than idealistic. And she's got some serious questions to answer. And the moment she spouts this toxic nonsense as president of the NUS in her new role and says this sort of stuff, it is the moment, I think, that hopefully uh, a lot of students across campuses across the UK will start to take some serious action. 
And we also did invite the Union of Jewish Students to take part in this programme, who unfortunately at the time of recording did not get back to us. There, of course, was further concerns, though, for students, especially Jewish students, when it was heard a notion to not commemorate Holocaust Memorial Day was applauded. And that's also part and parcel of the concern, isn't it? So that really has been a very grim week for students across the country. Another grim week, I think we can say, because, yes, this is probably the height of it. But there have been so many incidents. We, Of course, we saw the, the King's College fracas a few weeks ago that resulted in broken windows when an Israeli speaker was speaking. We've had various boycott motions. So this really is the pinnacle of bad news for Jewish students. But hopefully, it's unlikely, unfortunately, to be the end. Well, I would like to further quote Malia's statement as well when, in response to Holocaust Memorial Day, she has said that when a motion was debated to mark Holocaust Memorial Day on conference floor this afternoon, obviously referring to the day it occurred, I proudly voted for it. At NUS, National Executive Council, in February 2015, we voted unanimously to condemn and fight anti-Semitism. And she also goes on to say that she responded, or they responded straight away, to an open letter from Jewish Society presidents and addressed every allegation, making it very clear that she is fully supportive of Jewish students and societies. We shall have to see how this unfolds. But naturally, here at The Jewish Views, we do extend an open invitation to Malia if her or any member of the National Union of Students would like to take part in any future episodes of The Jewish Views they would be most welcome to do so. Let's move on to happier news. So of course, Her Majesty is celebrating a rather important birthday, and the community knows this. Yes, we have on our front page a happier note. 90 tributes for 90 years for an extraordinary woman. The Queen is 90 years old, as everybody in the country now knows. And all the great and the good from the community were approached by us over the previous few weeks in association with the Board of Deputies. And they have given an array of extraordinary congratulatory notes. We've got all sorts of people uh, in the world of politics and entertainment Martin Sorrell, Danny Finkelstein, uh, the chief rabbi, the former chief rabbi, Lord Sachs, Richard Desmond, uh, Michael Howard, Jonathan Friedland, and the list goes on. It's a wonderful array, and do pick up a copy of the paper, and it gives you a sense, I think, whether you're a monarchist or a republican, the affection, the love, I think, uh, and the respect that uh, the community holds this woman in really is conveyed across these pages. I was almost concerned you were about to read all 90 of them there for a moment. But uh, yes, absolutely, she is held in the most highest of regards. And in fact, even the attire that I don today is in perfect tribute to Her Majesty and indeed her birthday. And I've even had a little mini Victoria sponge cake to celebrate. So there you go. Perfect image for radio there. Thank Uh, you. Well, I thought I'd I'd give an audio description. It was as good as anything. Okay. Um, I I think if if anyone takes the time to read all 90 messages here, I I think it really is a perfect retort to anyone who feels that the monarchy should be abolished uh, and that doesn't really contribute to society. We've got people from the world of charity that talks about the 700 patronages she's given to charities and the automatic boost she, she gives to that, causes like Holocaust education. And, and so many other areas, tourism. Uh, and I, I just think that you, know, you just need to read this and it's, it's the perfect answer to all of that. Uh, I think we hope that the Queen will be around for many more years and as many people said in their messages, until 120, as we say uh, in Judaism. Well, here's hoping, well, from all of us, it's the Jewish Views and the Jewish News, respectively. Very happy birthday, Mom. 
Let's see what is occurring in the latest for the fight for City Hall. It's obviously an ongoing battle and it's edging ever nearer to us finding out who the next mayor for London will be. But what has occurred this week? Yeah, well, Zach and Sadiq have both been on the campaign trail in Jewish North London. I've had the opportunity to speak to them both over the past week. Sadiq was visiting Jewish Care last Thursday and and Zach toured North London with Conservative Friends of Israel on his battle bus through uh, Edgware Stam or Golders Green and onto a campaign rally in Finchley at Work Avenue last, last weekend. Zach was pretty strong. I would say this is the strongest he's been in his uh, attack on the Jewish front, if you like, towards his main rival. Uh, He spoke about how he's not believable on Israel, among other topics. And the reason for this is that back in the summer of, of 2009, around the time of Operation Cast Lead, Sadiq Khan was behind the scenes actively lobbying for sanctions against Israel. During this campaign, throughout this campaign, and to his great credit, he's been very clear that he is against any kind of boycotts and sanctions and feels that that doesn't lead towards peace and that people shouldn't turn their face against Israel. And so he was was stressing the fact that while, in his own words, in Zach's own words, Sadiq had said a number of very uh, important and interesting things during the course of this campaign, he feels that those are, in, in many circumstances, a million miles from the kind of positions he was espousing uh, in the past. For his part, Sadiq, as I said at Jewish Care, spoke to me about, as ever, uh, Labour anti-Semitism, a topic that he's been extremely strong on, uh, has to be said, uh, during this campaign. I feel that every time he's actually asked about this situation or or was challenged on the situation, his comments get stronger and stronger towards the Labour leadership. And he specifically in this interview has backed the proposals from the Jewish Labour movement for a change in the rules to tackle anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. Yeah, I think Sadiq has really run a sound and and steady race over the months. He's the one that's been most proactive. He's the one that's reached out to the community more and more. And there's been a new front that's opened, I think, in the battle in terms of uh, Zach Goldsmith's campaign in the last couple of days. Boris Johnson releasing an impassioned video, scaremongering, as the uh, Khan camp would call it. Prime Minister's questions also with the Prime Minister open to accusations of of so-called racism. So it's gloves off time in in the race for City Hall on, on the 5th of May. Latest figures, I think, have Sadiq Khan at 60% of the vote. So Zach's got it all to do in the last few days. He certainly has, but of course it will be revealed in due course. Don't forget that, of course, if you would like to see a full list of all the candidates who are standing in the race to be the next mayor of London, you can always go to londonelects, all one word, .org.uk, londonelects.org.uk. There, as I say, you'll see a list of all the candidates and what they are campaigning for. That's all we've got time for for this paper roundup. Thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Last week, we brought you a rather distressing story about new statistics that showed a large number of the Muslim community felt Jews had too much power over many aspects of life, including politics, media and finance. You may recall we were unable to get someone from the Muslim Council of Great Britain in time for the recording of the previous show, but I am delighted to say that we have rectified that following our extended invitation, and indeed for this week's edition. I've been speaking to Sheikh Ibrahim Mogra from MCB, and I started by asking him how the Muslim community have reacted to the recent findings. Well, 
many British Muslims, uh, including the Muslim Council of Britain itself, have questioned the presentation and the basis of these findings. We just do not recognize the picture that this poll paints of British Muslims and our diverse views. We're not a single community. We are a community of communities. And we have a whole range of views that are uh, reflective, I guess, of most societies in the world and indeed in our country. So we are not a single community that could be put into a bracket and say that is the Muslim community. Indeed, the Muslim Council of Britain itself does not and will not claim to be speaking for all Muslims because we recognize that there are other Muslims who have different views to those that the organization itself holds. Yes, so it very much compares with, say, the Jewish equivalent, which is, of course, the Board of Deputies, which although is a figurehead, a governing body, if you will, for the Jewish community of the UK, at the same time, there are many different branches of Judaism, there are many different followings and broken down. Many people have many different beliefs within the Jewish community, and and I'm guessing that obviously that is the, the case with the Muslim community as well then. Indeed, and what has been very interesting to notice, despite the fact that the Muslim communities do hold differing views about many different things, when he came to this poll, and indeed the documentary that was aired by Channel 4, a vast majority were almost on the same page in terms of reacting and responding to what was being aired on a national channel. So does that make you suspect, and I have to obviously be careful because Channel 4 are not here to answer any questions, nor indeed is the company who carried out the poll, but does it make you potentially suspect that perhaps maybe a certain section of the community were targeted rather than, say, the Muslim community in general across the board? I think for for your average viewer or listener, if they are not well-versed with how the Muslim communities are made up and what kind of diversity is present within the British Muslim communities, they would not make that extra effort to distinguish between the diverse groupings of Muslims. They would simply receive it as, okay, this is something about British Muslims, as the title itself suggested. Mm. And and so that is what is extremely worrying, that uh, an entire collective of British Muslim communities would be lumped into the same basket and then tarred with the same brush. Whereas we know, and it is a fact on record, that a vast majority of British Muslims and the communities that they belong to are law-abiding, are proud to be British, go about their daily lives like any other Brit. So yes, we are very concerned that this stigmatizes an entire community, perhaps maybe for the actions of a few. There are very clear parallels between the Muslim community and the Jewish community of this country. For starters, I mean, we've already established that there are so many different strands of both religions. You can't tar everybody with the same brush. But at the same time, there are also further parallels when you look at things such as Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Now, 
typically speaking, what spurs anti-Semitism in this country is the view of Israel and the Middle East. Now, obviously, that's a separate debate altogether. But the thing that seems to tarnish the Muslim community is terrorism. And when we see organizations such as so-called Islamic State, Hezbollah, and all the other terrorist organizations that, of course, we all know of, they all claim to do things in the name of religion. But what do you do to try and tackle the perception that they are doing it in the name of Islam when, of course, as you've already quite rightly identified, so many Muslims don't believe the same things that terrorist organizations do? How do you tackle it at the MCB? Yeah, I entirely agree with you that the issues that both our communities face in terms of anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim hatred and Islamophobia are things that, sadly, are very well known to us and our communities and uh, growing numbers of both our communities are suffering. And clearly, when you find the poll that perhaps we are trying to focus on, we, we look at the tarring of the Muslim community as being, for instance, anti-Semitic. So this, we believe this is a slur on British Muslims. It paints a picture of British Muslims being by and large anti-Semitic. And if this view takes hold within society, it can be very, very damaging for relations between our two communities. We would say very emphatically that this is untrue. Such suggestions... Do you mind if I ask how you know this? I'm sorry, I don't want to... It's only because I think our listeners would like to know, but how do you know that you can state that most members of the British Muslim community are indeed not anti-Semitic. Can you try and reassure people listening to this who might not know otherwise? Oh, yes. I think it's very important for me to try and attempt to reassure our Jewish friends, Jewish brothers and sisters in the United Kingdom that we will not tolerate at all any anti-Semitism. And the Muslim Council of Britain has a proud record of speaking out against not just anti-Semitism, but all kinds of discrimination and racism, and we must continue to do that. And we must not allow any wedge to be driven, particularly between Muslims and Jews, because this will simply embolden the bigots who will use these results of the poll, for example, to whip up hatred against Muslims. And Jews know only too well what horrible sufferings follow when hatred is allowed to take root. And we must learn from the lessons of history to make sure that we oppose any kind of discrimination, racism, and discrimination. So we very strongly oppose to anti-Semitism. We have and will always speak out against hatred against Jews wherever it occurs, especially if it's coming from any segment of the British Muslim community. And we believe that Together, if we redouble our efforts to speak out against all forms of hatred, whether it's anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim hatred, and other kinds of racism, I think we can defeat that menace that drives a wedge between our communities. And what we are doing, in answer to your question about what the Muslim Council of Britain and other Muslim organizations are doing to enable better relationships to flourish between our two communities in particular. We have several initiatives right across the country that are aiming to foster 
better relations between Jews and Muslims. And long may they continue. So, for instance, we have Mitzvah Day, which we have wholeheartedly supported. I personally had the honor and the privilege to be engaged in that chopping and dicing onions, etc., with the chief rabbi and lots of other Jewish <laughs> friends and other Muslim friends. And, and, and there's the Muslim equivalent, isn't there? There's the Muslim equivalent, I believe, now, isn't there? Sadaka Day, is that right? Yes, indeed. And I was coming to that. So, And the Mitzvah Day has inspired Muslims to come up with Sadaka Day, which is largely modeled on the Mitzvah Day. So this is what I'm trying to say is if we as two faith communities can demonstrate to our nation that regardless of what a few people may want to do in terms of trying to drive a wedge between us, whether it's based on the politics of Israel-Palestine or any other reasons that they might cite, we will remain united, we will demonstrate that we want to do things together. And if we look at the really serious matters, for example, when we saw the Muswell Hill Muslim Center burnt down, it was wonderful to see the synagogue down the road, opening their doors, opening their hearts, Jewish people saying to Muslims, hey, come over, you've lost your place. This place is as good as your place. Come and pray here, come and use our center. Now, this is a clear indicator for us that when human beings succeed in behaving like human beings, then we can come overcome any challenge that is put before us. We've seen an example, I mean, the Muslim Council of Britain and the Board of Deputies are not known to be working together every so often. But we have demonstrated, for example, with the joint statement that we issued in back in 2014, at the height of the conflict in Gaza, and we were able to come together for the common good, to call for peace, to call for calm, etc. So I think we have the capacity to work together, and that's what we ought to be focusing more on. And we reassure all our Jewish friends and almost, you know, a guarantee that we will not tolerate any anti-Semitism, especially if it's coming from any segment of the Muslim community. Sheikh Ibrahim Mogra from the Muslim Council of Great Britain talking to me there about the recent findings that suggested the Muslim community of Britain don't necessarily perceive Jews in the most favourable of lights. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by community volunteer Andy Lucas and actor and photographer Tony Honickberg. They'll be discussing Brit Miller, or circumcision. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Alexis Boo, one of three sisters from Hertfordshire, about her family's incredible fundraising efforts inspired by her brother-in-law, who was recently diagnosed with bowel cancer. Now, even if it's been a while, I'm sure everyone can relate to the trials and tribulations associated with the world of dating. Whether it's the whole process of meeting someone, to plucking up the courage to go and ask someone out, even if it's to the extent of getting down on one knee. Well, Natalie Breyer is called the Nigella of the dating world. Why, I hear you ask? Well, Kate Fulton has been finding out the answer to that, and many more besides, when she went along to meet her. She started by asking Natalie... What exactly does she do as a modern Shadchan? Well, I'm not really a Shadchan. I'm more of the accidental matchmaker. I fell into this role 
By nature, I'm a networker. My job involves networking for my firm to pick up business. So I've just expanded it to put people together rather than just businesses together. And it started with my cousin about 12 years ago, and it's gone from there. So I'm not traditional in any way. Not. No, because people think of a shadchan like in the Crossing Delancey type where, you know, it was she was just gross, but you're gorgeous and lovely and professional and don't look like her, although she was hilarious as a character. What sort of people do you put together and um, why do they need you anyway? Well, that's a good question. You would think the sort of people I like to put together could easily find someone by themselves. But in this day and age, it's not so simple. I like to work with people who are successful in whatever field they've chosen to follow. I like to work with people who want to get married. If you're not seriously wanting to find a partner, I'm not going to work with you. And I also like to work with people who take care of their appearance. What sort of ages do you tend to find match? Quite an array of ages. It could be as young as 21 and as old as 65 it's just if they've got those three things and I come across somebody that would fit them well I'll put them together so I have four or five people bouncing around in my head at one time and I'm actively looking out for someone that would go with them so that could be really young or a little bit older and when you do that do you Say you bump into somebody else who you met sort of five years ago how do you keep all these things juggling around I'm blessed with a very good memory and I keep it all in my head. And how do you advertise yourself? How do people get to hear about you? I, I don't. It's all very low key. That, that's the thing. If you were a shadchan, you'd be out there in the world looking for clients. I am not charging for for my services, if you like. So I pick who I want to work with and I will actively go out and t- ask them, you know, I think I might know somebody for you. Would you like me to match you up? Nine times out of ten, they say, yes, why not? Because I don't look like that traditional exactly. yenta. yenta no, you right. don't look like the yenta type. No. Why do you think people aren't meeting as they used to in sort of traditional ways? I think there's a few things. People are not getting married that young anymore. And it's much easier to do it when you're young because you're still in the youth movement. You're at university. You're surrounded by young people and their friends and friends of friends. And you organically meet people. But once you're out of that environment and you'll say in the work environment, if you're looking for somebody Jewish, the likelihood of meeting that in the UK is narrower and smaller. So unless you've met somebody already or you've got a group of friends who happen to know somebody the opportunities get smaller and smaller as the years go by. And what do you think of the dating websites, the J-Date, the J-Swipe? How have they affected people, young people meeting? Well, people do, they do meet, but I'm not very fond of all this technology. You don't know who you're dealing with. And I was talking to somebody the other day who are thinking about building an app themselves, a dating app. And they say they've done their research and 80% of the men on the websites are either married or really not serious. So he was telling me about building an app that is only going to incorporate serious people. So it's nice in theory, but if you're a serious man or a serious woman looking to meet your partner in life, the web and the app might not be the best place to go. How many people have you managed to match? 14, so seven couples. That's wonderful. Thank you. Gosh, that's very impressive. And 
So you imagine someone's come to you and you've had an idea that someone would, would go well with somebody else. How do you get them to meet and agree to meet? I'd say about half the time I try and avoid a blind date because I don't like going on blind dates. So I assume that everybody else doesn't either. However, everybody likes to eat. And one of the reasons I'm called the Nigella of dating is because I'm actually trained as a chef and I love to throw dinner parties. So wherever possible, if everybody's in London, I will get them round the table with other people so that it's comfortable, married and single, and see what happens. Very nice. So you host sort of singles evenings or or rather just... I host dinner dinner parties where there is a selection of married and single people, old and young. And if I have a particular idea in mind, I'll put them next to each other and see if the Next to, not opposite. Okay. And um, do you make special food? Is there some special food of love? <laughs> or that be giving away too many secrets? <laughs> no, Jen, I have to say, no, not really. Uh, but people are rather partial to chocolate. Oh, and has anybody ever said, absolutely not, I'm not meeting, I'm just not going to go and meet somebody? If you've described them, or would you normally say, just just go and see? Because how else are they going to meet if it's not on a blind date? Yes, I mean, it does, it does happen. Often it happens with sort of brothers. So I've got friends and they've got brothers. And they know me, but not that well. And I'll suggest something. And then the killer Facebook puts them off. That's, Why that's, is it a killer? Because people won't go out with anyone until they've checked them out on Facebook. This is the standard procedure with the, with the young, with the people in their 20s and 30s. And if there's, a, there's some pictures on there that they don't fancy, they won't meet them. So people be very careful with your Facebook profiles. Absolutely. There's sometimes when you see somebody in real life, something they say, a twinkle in your the That eye. you're not going to pick up. You're just not, are you? No, I'm definitely on side. I can see where this is. But I, I'm not here to push anybody into anything. So if they're not going to work with me and be easygoing, then that's their loss. Mm. How much of your time are you spending doing this? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so you go, you go to work with all these work ideas and then the other ideas buzzing. Yes, it's sort of, it's, it's full on 24 hours a day, really. Wow. Mm. Have you got any funny stories you can share <laughs> <laughs> that won't identify the individuals involved? Well, I've, I've fixed up one of my friends in New York she's Persian with another Persian chap and she can be quite demanding and she says to me she rings me up and says he's not coming to pick me up and if he didn't come pick her up that would have been the end of that so I had to call him and assume so you're picking her up at what time and he got the message and they're married now so oh well that's a nice happy end to the story so sometimes you've just got to negotiate it round you'd think that if a man is tall and handsome and has got a professional job and is charming he knows what to do I'm finding most of the time they just don't know exactly what to do especially initially they don't know where to take them they don't know what to buy they don't know that they have to pick them up and drop them off so I I'm there I navigate the route for them a little bit your friend your mummy your mentor your all of these things it's incredible on a serious note there is something there is some sort of Jewish idea about matching people do you want to tell us about that well there's a rumor that says if you've done three matches you go to heaven so according to that, I've got VIP seats. <laughs> but for right now, I'm interested in doing as much good as I can down on planet Earth. Natalie Breyer talking to Kate Fulton there. 
And if you think that you could benefit from Natalie's help, then you are very welcome to email us here at The Jewish Views. That address is coming up, by the way, and we'll be sure to forward your contact details on to her. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can always contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, how far would you go to help someone in your family who had been diagnosed with cancer? I'm guessing that the answer to that would be there is no limit. Well, in terms of distance, Tiffany... Alexis and Melise, three sisters from Hertfordshire, are embarking on a 26-mile expedition in order to help out one of their own. Tiffany's husband, Mike, was recently diagnosed with bowel cancer, but rather than let it get the better of them, they've put their time to incredible fundraising use instead. Diana Toman has been finding out more about this truly inspirational story by speaking to Alexis. She started by asking her to tell us how they came up with the idea in the first place. In June last year, my brother-in-law, Mike, got diagnosed with cancer and he's been undergoing quite extensive treatment since then. And the consultant that that Mike is under has a charity that he's been doing some work for to try and raise money for other kinds of treatment for cancer that people don't normally get on the NHS. And so my sister heard about this particular charity, which is called Action for Cancer. And there was a walk that they were doing called Walk With Me. So she told me she was going to do it and kind of ropes me into it, really. And here I am. I see. And your other sister, now the person who roped you in is presumably Tiffany, who is is Mike's Mike's wife. wife. And your other sister, is that Melise? Melise, that's correct. Melise, she's going to walk with... Where are you going to walk to on this incredible 26-mile hike? It's in the Oxfordshire countryside. So it starts at a point in the middle of the Oxfordshire countryside and it goes along quite a lot of off-road and is a circular walk that then comes back round along the river. Hopefully quite picturesque. It sounds it. Are you and your sisters good walkers anyway? Well, I wouldn't say that. (laughs) Tiffany did a similar kind of charity walk about four years ago, which was in London. And I've done some charity events, but more bike riding. I'm more of a cyclist than a walker. I see. Right. Now, I imagine that you've already raised some money towards it in sponsorship. We've raised an incredible amount of money. We've raised £21,660 at last count. Have you really? Yeah. And that's before you start walking? That's before we've even started walking. It's been incredible. And that's from just sort of Jews in northwest London or has it gone further No, I, re- I really do think it's a case of the Jewish community pulling together, actually, because it's been mainly family and friends and just people who have heard our story, my parents' friends. And I just think it's been a really good example of where the Jewish community have pulled together and donated in incredible amounts. I mean, we've been totally overwhelmed. When when I first spoke to Tiffany about it, we said, wouldn't it be amazing if we could raise £10,000? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Yes. And we did that in four days. Did you really? My yeah. goodness, that's incredible. How long is this walk going to take? <laughs> I Well... Tiffany would like to do it in seven hours, but I'm thinking that might be a push. So I think probably 
between seven and a half and eight hours. And and when is this, Alexis? When, it's on the 22nd of May. The 22nd of May, right. You say that you're not experienced walkers. How are the three of you going to prepare for this enormous walk in May? Well, we've already been preparing. So just started off with six mile walks and we did our longest walk of 14 miles the weekend before last. We've got a big walk planned this weekend. So every other weekend we've been doing quite long walks. We're going to try and get to 18 miles for our training walks and then just kind of tail off a little bit two weeks before the walk. If people want to donate, which they may well do, how do they do it? The Jewish News has got the article online and there is a link to the page where you can donate at the bottom of the article. And apart from walks, have you got any future fundraising plans? I'm sure there will be because we're very much about fundraising for lots of different causes. And I think me and Tiffany have already talked about next year, if we don't walk the event, we might well help to marshal it. So we'll, we'll continue to stay involved with the charity and, and follow its work. Alexis Boo talking to Diana Toman. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today are community volunteer Andy Lucas and actor and photographer Tony Honigberg. And the subject for this edition is based on what we heard in the news with Jason earlier on in the programme, Brit Mila, or Circumcision. A judge has ruled that a Muslim man will not be allowed to have his son circumcised. This case is obviously not that straightforward, and despite Jewish leaders urging the community not to read too much into a very specific case, we thought we have to ask the question, could this be the beginning of the end for the practice of circumcision, and should we be protecting the ritual? of Brit Mila. Let's start with you, Andy. I think that it needs to carry on because it has been proven that circumcised boys are... They don't suffer with penile cancer. They don't cause their wives or partners to have cancer of the cervix. And I think it's a very essential part of what we do and what should happen. The royal family are all circumcised, apparently, by a moil. And I just think it's extremely important. And when it's done at eight days or, you know, or as near to that as possible, do the men or do the boys actually remember it? No, it's yeah, the answer exactly, to that. Exactly. So I can't see, by making such a great big thing of it, that it's that important to say no I think it needs to be done. It's well, done automatically in America. The, the point that you're making is absolutely true because my brother is a surgeon, a quite eminent surgeon, and he has, for a long, long time, when people in, in hospital were asking, should we have our son circumcised, neither Jewish nor Muslim people, Christian people should, he would always say, yes, it's essential that it's done. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned keep the ritual going, but it... I'm going to sort of throw a spanner in the works here, really, because we've, we've got rid of a lot of other rituals, haven't we? We don't do animal sacrifices anymore. So, you know, why if we don't do that, we only do prayer. Why do we need to circumcise 
Is it for health reasons these days? I don't know, because, uh, you know, people are healthier these days, and I don't think people catch diseases as much as they did when circumcision first came about. I'm not particularly against it, but I'm just wondering from the other side, is it necessary? I think it goes beyond just a tradition, though, Tony. I think there are so many reasons for it. For example, the fact that it's called a Brit Millar, everyone says it's a circumcision. Well, funnily enough, people shorten it to a Brit. A Brit. Mm -hmm. Now, the word Brit means covenant. That's the important part. It's not the actual circumcision that's the important part. It's the covenant that Abraham made with, with God that separates us and is something that we have subscribed to because it's not only that it's a covenant with God, it's also the idea is that this notion of tikkun olam, mm. fixing the world, the world was created and is not perfect for the very reason that we are here to fix it, to make it more perfect. The human body, the male body, is not perfect and was created and designed, if you believe in that that's what your beliefs are, was created and designed to be not perfect. And the very first action as a, an eight-day-old boy has is to improve the world. Straight away, within eight days, they are fixing the world. Not only that, it's been scientifically proven, and this, to me, is just staggering, scientifically proven that a child's blood is at its thinnest on the eighth day. Mm. Yeah. So it's not just that. chance that it was the eight, that, that this eighth day was was around, and that's only been proved in the last thirty, forty years. That the eighth day is when the blood is the thinnest, and that is the safest and medically most sound time to perform. The if, you, if you if you're going to perform, but is it is it necessary to perform it? To, because I mean, you say that it's, the child isn't born. I can't remember what your words were. The child isn't born, Not born perfect. perfectly. Yeah. And if we don't do the other things as Jewish people, why do we have to perform a brit But what things don't think we do? We don't do animal sacrifices anymore. We would, anymore. though. We, only don't, we haven't got rid of animal sacrifices. We don't do them because we don't have a temple and to do And you think if in. we brought a temple back, but then we'd do animal 100%. sacrifices? I don't think we would. Yeah, I think. 100%. Oh, I'm not sure I'm not we sure would. we would. I don't I think, think we'd we continue would. Absolutely. The that, that's the only reason we don't do sacrifices, because there's no temple but to I'd, do it. Actually, I don't, think, I don't think that you can, you can compare the two sacrifices and the brit Mila. For the simple reason, as I've already mentioned, that all medical men that I know will all tell you that it's much, much better for a male child to be circumcised than for a male child not to be circumcised. Well, like I said, I'm not against it. I, 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 my, my son was uh, circumcised, of course. But there are Jewish women around that... Uh, I, I mean, this is, this is a bit personal, actually, because my daughter is pregnant... She's, she's with a non-Jewish partner. She's having a baby boy. She doesn't want to have her, circum her son circumcised. Is well, that I've because... Had is, I've had big arguments with her. Is well, this been, because she doesn't want him to look different no, from his No, no, well, that's or? one excuse. But she just doesn't... Well, can I tell you a story she says about it's barbaric. that? Really interesting story. Someone I know married someone who wasn't Jewish. The father wasn't Jewish. The mother was. Obviously, the son was Jewish. They decided not to circumcise the boy because they didn't want him to look different to the father. Mm. The boy ended up going to a Jewish school. The father ended up having a medical complaint and had to be circumcised. So the father, who's not Jewish, is circumcised, and the boy, the boy who isn't. is, it isn't. You know, so, 
Quite I, can, I can tell you another story about a, a very religious Jew that I know who had three daughters, and sadly for him, all three of his daughters married non-Jewish husbands. And he went to a rabbi that I know and said to that rabbi, what am I going to do when my grandsons grow up and want to get married, hopefully, to a Jewish girl, and they go to the synagogue to get married, and he's not circumcised? And the rabbi said, listen, have you ever heard of a rabbi going to a bridegroom and saying, before you go into synagogue, you must take a trousers off? No, of course not. Of course not. Although there would be issues at the mikvah. If you have a mikvah before your wedding, which, you know, generally that's the custom, and if they're... Not not everybody does. Not everybody does. does. I thought it was only the women who go to mikvahs. No, women do it monthly. Men have different... But a, um, a, a, woman go, a woman wedding. goes once a month anyway yeah. because that's what they do. But yeah. they also go before they get married. That's right. As just to make do, sure. Men yeah. and women do, yeah. Yeah. generally. But I yeah. Was, yeah. That's quite interesting because I was married by Haham Gaon, who was the Sephardi chief rabbi. And he never said to me before I got married, before I married, you've got to go to a mikvah. No, I never me went ne- to me I don't think you have to, but no. I think it's that... Purity, that so, cleansing so, before a wedding. So if a boy isn't circumcised, presumably he would say, he would, no, he I don't want to go. So I don't want to go. You'd get a hell of a shock on the wedding night if he wasn't, wouldn't you? God, yeah, absolutely. Imagine. Well, one, one would hope these days that, that, <laughs> that the girl would probably know beforehand, I would think. No, one would hope she doesn't, but one well, would expect that well, she does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe and you're another right. very important thing, which, <laughs> you, which has already been mentioned, is the fact that no wife of a Jewish husband ever suffers from cancer. No. Well, they oh, suffer no. from cancer, but not, but not from cervical. From, very not rare. not cervical cancer. Very rare. Right. Is that right? That's cancer. Yeah, the hygiene and the yeah is so much better. Yeah, but people That's argue right. these days. I mean, I did argue with my daughter. She argued about the hygiene, you know, people are clean and everything else. And I said, well, not everybody. And, and even if they're not... Even if they're slightly unclean, if, you, if the child is circumcised, he will be clean. I think Thanks the concern, you. though, I'm I'm not sure if the discussion is the benefits of of circumcision, but I'm concerned more about about the judge making people yeah. actually. And it's not the first time we've heard this issue, is it? This this comes up every so often. It's the same as shechita. Every hmm. so often, these issues come up, and it's oh, it's it's inhumane. It's it's barbaric. Is this is this one of these things where Jewish people are getting caught up in in the the, the backfire of it rather than at the front of it? Again, you know, because the the, the shechita thing was, well, when, was was with the halal meats, wasn't it? And the, and Jewish people have practiced shechita for years well, and had no is, problem. We're not caught up in this. No, yet. we're not. Yeah, but that's we may thing. well we, be. It, it, it's, it's, yeah, that's the thing. The worry is where is this leading, mm. isn't it? What's the um, next step? Yeah. The other thing is that a lot of moils nowadays, they anaesthetise using Emla or Amitop mm. or one of these creams or a spray before they actually do the circumcision, before they actually do the cut. So the baby and doesn't feel the pain. The baby doesn't feel it anyway. Yeah. So, they were they know. were talking on the radio this week about it, and and two women or three women phoned up and said, "I heard, I heard my child scream." I've no, I've been to several Brit Brit Mealers, and I've never heard a child scream. Never. A little cry. Yeah. You know, little they drop, a, little drop of kiddish wine. Yeah, that's that's right. A Brit a Brit that I went to a few years ago, I was because I'm a cameraman as well. 
actually was a what friend. a rotten job to get oh you would know <laughs> <laughs> and, and it wasn't the video that the, the person who's Briss it was it was his father I do a lot of work with and do video and he's also a photographer so he gave me his camera said just take pictures of, of the Briss so I'm walking around taking pictures of guests of little displays of little foods on the table <laughs> he comes up and said get in there get a picture <laughs> So I took the pictures. I think the baby was more shocked by the flash on the camera than the yeah. actual circumcision well, yeah. itself. Yeah. Oh. It really was. Did you look through the viewfinder or did you just hold the camera? <laughs> Tony, it, it doesn't bother me. It really is no skin off my nose. <laughs> no, it's off somewhere else. That is a terrible pun. I'm so sorry. I think we've got off the subject a little bit, haven't we? Should, should a judge be ruling this or not? That's a very difficult question mm. to answer. Because we don't know what the actual cases of things that were happening about the case no. were and why this Muslim man was saying his child must be circumcised and his wife was completely against it. So un unless we know the complete... But it was facts. because the parents weren't together. I think I was was say, the father split? wanted it and, yeah. Yeah, and the mother didn't. And they're separated, So that's they? where the, the issue they're, they're lies. Separated. They're They've separated. separated. Because um, of this yeah. or before? No, no, I think they were separated They'd already separated, before. yeah. And obviously the mother's with the child, but the father's input is that he wants the child circumcised and, and the, the father, mother doesn't. the father gets to look well, after the child is, as there well, is a fact. Yeah. There is a fact, though, also that in the Muslim religion, the opposite to the um, Jewish religion is that the child of a Muslim father is, is a Muslim. Muslim. That's yes. right. Whereas we believe that the child of a Jewish mother is Jewish. Is, is yeah. Jewish. Yeah. Well, so that makes much more sense because you always know who your mother is. You don't always know so who your father yeah. is. Yeah, and that was the reasoning because I believe it used Originally, to be Originally it was, you the followed father. the father's religion. And then they, exactly then they said, Andy, it. that's, that's yeah. why they, they changed, changed it. it. Yeah. In the Jewish view, it was because the Lord of the Manor had the right to have yes. anybody he wanted. Mm. That's how it came about. Yeah. It only came about yeah. in, in, I think it was the 15th century. It's not a, It doesn't go way back. That's I mean, right. for example, Moses and Co. All, all of them, they none of them married Jewish wives. No, no, mm. no, they didn't. That's right. But the children were Jewish. The children were Jewish. Yes, yes. Father's religion. But that's another argument, which which I would. But that's another discussion. See, for I, yes. I, on on the matter of whether it's going to be eventually banned in this country, I can't see how it can because. As we know, in, in the Jewish world, we have to follow the laws of the land. And the laws of the land don't tell us not to. People no. in this country do it. So, yeah. so there right. we are. And, and as we've said already, that it's, it's medically a very good idea. Yes. And there, I'm sad to say that we have to end the discussion. But it's been very interesting. I think you're all correct in what you've been saying. So my thanks to our guests, community volunteer Andy Lucas and actor and photographer Tony Honigberg. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. It's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue. The Haggadah sets great stock in the importance of narrating the Exodus. Even if we were all Chachamim, Nevonim, Vyodim et Torah, all wise, all people of understanding, all aged and knowledgeable in the Torah, we're commanded to tell of our departure from Egypt. The trilogy of Chochmah, Bina and Dat is found in many places in the Torah, 
particularly with reference to the skill set of the builders of the tabernacle or with Moses' appointed leaders. According to the Vilna Gaon, in this context, Chochmah is the learning we have acquired from our teachers. Bina is the ability to interrelate the lessons and expand our learning from within. And Dat is knowledge with clarity, grounded in certainty. The expression Kulanu Zakenim, all aged, seems to be a later addition and is not found in some of the ancient Haggadah texts. In Kabbalah, the four expressions are partnered with the Pardes, the mystical orchard of wisdom, explanation through Pshat, a straightforward understanding, Remez, allegory and illusion, Drash, extrapolation through our traditional rules of exegesis, and Sod, the secret or Kabbalistic meaning. This is accessible only through revelation or inspiration. While some commentators see this as an invitation to delve into all manners of profundities, the numbers of plagues, types of angels, and messianic illusion in the Haggadah, others see the literal language of the mitzvah, le saper b'yetziat mitzrayim, as an admonition that we must be properly grounded and not lose sight of the primary obligation to narrate the story of the Exodus. On the one hand, there's a heavy emphasis on the scholarship and expansive elaboration. The passage in the Haggadah concludes, the more one narrates, the greater the merit. However, on the other, the delivery of the narration should not become separated from the sense of personal deliverance and redemption. Had the Almighty not brought out our ancestors from Egypt, then we, our children and our children's children, would still be enslaved to Pharaoh. In itself, this is a strange claim. The empires of Babylon, Greece, Rome, and even England have come and gone. Is it conceivable that had Moses not succeeded in his day, then over the last three millennia, we would still be in ancient Egypt with our history at a standstill? And not just us, but our children and our grandchildren? The pre-Tzaddik, Rabbi Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin of the 19th century, addresses this question, and he explains that to fulfill the narration, we must celebrate and not just narrate historic redemption. We must approach our Seder with thanks to the Almighty for His promise fulfilled. Moreover, we should be uplifted in the knowledge that if He could deliver us from Egypt back then, whatever circumstances we may encounter today, Hashem can always open a pathway for those who wish to draw close. However, if we fail to appreciate the potential of divine assistance in our own lives, then it is as if we are still enslaved, and moreover, we will see no hope for our children, nor for theirs. Accordingly, it's not enough to know the story, however well or whatever depth. We must relate to the story as we relate it. The greater of our appreciation of God's presence in our past the greater our yearning for his redemption in our day, and Lashana Haba next year in Jerusalem rebuilt. Thank you to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for for this week. So thanks to our guests, Sheikh Ibrahim Mogra, Nasli Breyer, Alexis Boo, Andy Lucas and Tony Honigberg, who were on the schmooze, and of course you at home for listening. Thanks also to the team, including our producers Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. And don't forget that you can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can also search for us in iTunes. 
The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. Just a reminder that next week's episode of The Jewish Views will be available as a podcast from Sunday the 1st of May. And that is, of course, because Yom Tov falls on Friday the 29th. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.